So how did Dave Chappelle learn that criticism and failure is the best thing that can happen? He believes it was great for him, and I believe we can learn a lot from his experience. Let's go. Helping you win in your work life so that you can win in the rest of your life. I'm Ken. This is the Ken Coleman Show. So love him or hate him. And I think there's probably a lot that uh, on both of those camps. I think Dave Chappelle is probably one of the most fearless, bold public figures walking the face of the earth today. If you just look at his journey, the top of his game at Comedy Central, and he just walks. And if you've seen the interviews and the story behind that, a lot of people called him crazy, uh, hurled a lot of attacks at him. Why would he walk away from such an enormous deal? He disappears essentially for a while, and now he's back and arguably bigger than ever. And I find him to be, again, uh, some of his stuff is honestly a little bit too blue for me. <laughs> uh, it is, as my kids say, it's cringy. Uh, however, brilliantly funny and fearless. I mean, fearless. You, you, if you, if you get beyond some of the topics that he takes on, and you just look at this dude who is willing to just say whatever he thinks. I watched a, a portion of his uh, Mark Twain Comedy Award at the Kennedy Center. And just watching his interaction with that crowd in this very prestigious moment with a lot of hoity-toity power brokers in the audience and how he fearlessly walked out with a cigarette and smoked a cig the entire time. He just doesn't care what you think. So is that unhealthy or is it wildly healthy? So this is what I want to dive into. So I came across... Uh, a portion of interview that he did years and years and years ago, and I read it, and then the team, we went and pulled it. And he's talking about, in this clip we're going to show you, uh, being 14 years of age, the first time he got an amateur opportunity to go to amateur night at uh, the Apollo Legendary Theater. And legendary for the crowd being ruthless. If you've never seen Showtime at the Apollo, you need to go on YouTube and just... Get yourself a big bucket of popcorn and watch <laughs> what happens when the crowd says, you suck. We don't want any more of you. And they begin to boo and they literally get you off the stage. So this is a brutal environment. He's 14. Watch what he said about the experience of being booed and flopping miserably. Watch this. And I'm going to go to that Apollo and rip that mug. I went for the regular Wednesday amateur night. When I say I got booed off stage, I still remember that boo. I'd never been booed off stage before, but I just remember looking out and seeing like everybody booing, everybody. <laughs> Even old people, I was like, who, who boos a child pursuing his dreams? <laughs> this is the, the meanest crowd in the world. And that sign went off, and that dude comes out tap dancing. Dun, 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 Sandman. Sandman. I wanted to choke this shit out. I hate you. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Wow. Best thing because it was like, hey, they're all booing. My friends are here watching. My mom. This is not that bad. And after that, I was fearless. After that, I was fearless. 
humiliated. Let's just be honest. There's there's being booed, and then there's the emotional reality of that situation. Humiliated, and he just gets booed off the stage. They literally say, get off the stage. It's just brutal. How is it that he looks back on that and says, that's the best thing that ever happened to him? Well, he becomes fearless because that was pretty much the low point for him. It doesn't get any worse than being booed off the stage at the Apollo Theater for a comic. It doesn't matter if you're 14 or 44. The emotional effect is the same. You are being told that you are a failure. And so in this moment, you are embracing failure. Now, here's the next level on this that you need to understand before we go forward. When a comedian is booed off the stage at the Apollo Theater, they are the product. It's way more personal than you launching your side hustle and 60 days later having no money in the bank, your big idea failed, and you have to shut it down. Does that suck? Yeah, it sucks. Is there emotional pain with that? Yes. But it was an idea, a product or a service. You most likely didn't even invent it. Being booed off of the stage at the Apollo Theater for a comedian is radically personal. And yet he looks back on it. He became fearless because he survived a very extremely painful public failure. And he woke up the next day and his life wasn't over. That's why it was the best thing that happened to him. That's also why I tell people all the time, you know, uh, when I get interviewed, people ask me, I get this question a lot. A lot of people in my space get this question. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? And my new answer, my stock answer, probably for the rest of my life is going to be, Fail fast. In other words, step into some things a lot earlier than I did and embrace failure quickly. Get it over with. Get get to failure. Fail fast and 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 then get back up on the horse fast. Like get fail quickly and 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 learn quickly. So the big lesson for Chappelle was hey, failure's not the end of the world. I'm okay. And so now he's the most fearless comedian on the planet. Like him or not, the guy's fearless. So let's look at the context by which we Americans are are introduced to failure. And the mindset we have about failure is largely institutionalized. Here's what I mean. Let's look at our school system. K through 12, public, private, doesn't matter. What's the rhythm? Pay close attention. Learn. Learn. We're going to test you, and then we're going to grade you on how much you were able to learn. In other words, regurgitate from memory on the test. Do you understand the concept? Do you remember the facts? Okay, nothing inherently wrong with that, except for the mindset that we walk away from that type of training is failure's bad. Do everything you can not to fail. You don't want to get a C. But it's okay. You certainly don't want to get a D. And my goodness, if you get an F, you got to go to summer school. You got to do all this. And it's just bad, bad, bad. So failure is contextualized in our school systems as bad. Yet, if you're going to invent something, lead somebody, try something, start a new job, get trained on any new skill, 
failure is a part of the process. Just think about it. You took a surfing lesson. You learned to ride a bike. You take art classes, ballroom dancing, learn how to code, learn how to speak publicly. Oh, boy. Can I just tell you, there's only one way to get better as a speaker, and that's to stand up and be awful. And then look back at the tape, have someone coach you and tell you how to do it better. We have been trained to get everything right, but we haven't been trained to learn from failure. So what can we do now? I'm going to walk you through three practical steps to learn from failure. Dave Chappelle said that failing miserably at the Apollo was one of the greatest lessons that he could have ever learned. It made him fearless. So how do we reprogram our brains towards failure? And let me throw another one in here, criticism. So failure is very personal to all of us because when we fail at something that we we want to win in, I mean, we certainly, and that stinks, you know, and we certainly sit with that and we soak on it and we criticize ourselves. Uh, but that's one level. But then there's the criticism of others. So I'm gonna I'm gonna bake in here uh, to this failure and criticism, and how both actually can be channeled or filtered to help you move forward. And you look back on it, and go, "Is the best thing that ever happened to me? Failing or being criticized?" So there's there are three actions that we can take, and this is about a mental approach. It's a mindset approach to failure criticism. So the first one is embrace. And when I say embrace, I mean, come on, come on. You know what I mean? You know, you know, when you see your your grandparents and they come to the house, your parents, if if, if they're older now, you, you know, and what do we do when we see them? We open our arms and we move towards them. That's an embrace. So I want that to be the mindset here about failure. Embrace sucking. (laughs) I mean, come on, come on in here, sucking. Come on, let's go. Let's let's hug. Get in here. Like when we embrace somebody who is close to us, a friend, a family member, what are we doing? We are inviting them in for a moment of acceptance. That's what it is. Come here. Let me give you a hug. Haven't seen. Come here. Come here, you. Right? Whatever that is. It is an invitation. And and, and it's an invitation for acceptance. That's how I see an embrace. A hug. It's that simple. So you're telling me, Ken, you want me to invite sucking, being bad? Invite it in and accept it? Yes. I use this illustration all the time. It's the easiest one to understand. If you are a kid and you want a bike, which most kids do, there's the moment where maybe it shows up with a ribbon on it, a bow at your birthday, or at Christmas, and you're very excited. 
But then the moment of truth arrives. You got to learn how to ride that first bike. And I'm talking about that first bike. Got to learn how to ride it. And so we talk, we can talk about training wheels. That's okay. And that just gets you going. But there's a point where the training wheels come off and we're really riding this bike. And that's when the nerves, the anxiety, the worry, the fear, the doubt all come crushing down on us. But we still step up to it. And we learn to ride a bike by embracing the suck. This is going to be wobbly. I'm going to wreck. I want to minimize my my bodily harm, but I'm going to learn to ride this bike. We embrace the suck. You take a, a new course in anything, and you realize I'm no good at it. I've never done it, and you have to, when you do this, when you sign up, so you do this more than you realize. But there are times we back off when the stakes are higher. And so I think it's important that we increase the stakes. And the stakes that we really need to increase is the steps we want to take to be who we want to be. That means we've got to learn. We've got to do. We've got to put ourselves out there. So embrace the suck. Be willing to be booed. Be willing to be uh, critiqued. That's a positive criticism. Someone's teaching you, showing what you can do better. Typically a coach, certainly a leader. But also be willing to be criticized. To go out and give a speech in front of 500 people and get the survey results back and read them and go, oh, oh, brutal. You got to embrace the suck. When I embrace the suck, here's what's happening. I'm learning, I'm improving, and I'm growing. Learning is knowledge. Improving is skill. And growing is grit. Let me say that again. When I embrace the suck, it's a mindset to go, I'm going all in. I'm going to suck at this when I start, but here's what's going to come out of this. I learn. I get knowledge. I improve. I develop skill. And I grow mentally. That's grit. And what comes out of this is what Dave Chappelle said. He became fearless. So as he recounts it all these years later, here's what I take from it. He walked away that night with tremendous grit, and it was the grit that kept him coming back, and that's when he was able to learn the craft of stand-up and develop the skills which make him one of the great comedians of all time. Man, we could shut the show down. Honestly, that's all you need to hear. But we'll keep going. Beyond embracing the suck, when you encounter failure, you need to learn how to do good math. And here's what I mean by that. Learn to calculate risk. Learn to calculate risk so that risk is never fatal. After all, the fear of the unknown is, is where we see most fear of risk happen. But the more I know about what I'm attempting to do, I can now prepare myself through additional skills, through some experience, and build myself up to where the risk is not fatal. Okay? Most risk will never be fatal. But even fatally, uh, fatal financially doesn't have to be the level by which we risk. So I think it's really important that we begin to dive into what could go wrong 
And if it could be fatal, then what I do is, is I dial back. So instead of free climbing a rock, I'm going to climb with ropes and a guide and yada, 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 so that my failure doesn't have to be fatal. It's the idea of, hey, wait a second. I should never take on unreasonable, idiotic risk. Should never do that. Should never do it. And the final action is rinse and repeat. I've embraced the suck. I do good math on where I want to go forward, how I can go forward with reasonable risk. That's reasonable financial risk, reasonable physical risk, reasonable relationship risk, reasonable professional risk. It's reasonable. It's not fatal. If it doesn't work, I'm okay. I'm still alive, and I can show up again. So rinse and repeat. As we embrace the suck, we walk out of this with more knowledge than we had the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, each additional time. I walk out with more knowledge. And remember, I'm learning. I walk out with more skill because I'm improving every time. And I walk out with more grit. That ends up being this tough skin, this muscle that's developed. And so what you once were afraid of, you don't even think twice about. I don't even think twice about giving a bad talk. Because now I know I'm not going to give a bad talk. Is it my best talk every time? No. Are some talks when are brand new, are they a little bit off? And I need to go, eh, what can I learn from that? Do that better? Absolutely. But I'm not worried about sucking anymore because I've embraced enough suck to get to the point where what I'm doing I know how to get to a point where I'm not going to go public with it. I'm not going to put it out there as a product offering or an idea or a talk or a book or a a tool because I now have a process. I have learned to rinse and repeat. I embrace the suck. I do good math. I embrace the suck. I do good math. And And I'm walking away every time learning, improving, and I have more grit. And that's what's huge. So why does this matter? Because the big stuff that you care about And we're talking about a professional context most of the time on this show. But you can certainly bring this into your personal life. The big things that matter, they're big for a reason. There is some risk. There's some skin that's got to be put in the game. And there is absolutely failure that you must move forward through. Welcome back to the Ken Coleman Show, where we help you win at work so that you're winning in other areas of your life. If you are a person who feels stuck or confused, you may need some self-awareness in a big way. Awareness leads to tremendous confidence. In other words, clarity breeds confidence, and confidence breeds courage. That's why I created the tool. There's nothing like it out there. It's called the Get Clear Assessment, and it will measure three major areas of of you, elements of you, threads of you, if you will. One, what you do best, that's your talent. Two, the work that you love to do, that's passion. And then three, the results of your work that motivates you, that is mission. When you 
get clear on all three of those things, you begin to see your unique design. And that's where ideas come. And that's where paths are discovered. It's called the Get Clear Assessment, KenColeman.com slash assessment, KenColeman.com slash assessment. It's 15 minutes and 30 bucks, and you're going to get tremendous awareness and great, great confidence. Let's go to the phone. Spencer's on the line in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Spencer, how can I help? Spencer, uh, Ken? Yes, sir. Hey, it's terrific to talk to you, brother. Good to talk to you. Let's say I'm 42. I've... Um been an English teacher starting out just right off the gate in my 20s. Been an insurance agent, a water and fire restoration marketer, project manager, and estimator. I'm a good bit closer now than what I used to be, but I feel like I need to get dialed into what I was divinely designed to do. And just on a, just a side note, I'm a very high eye on the disc profile. Okay. So that means you, love, means you love being around people. People give you energy. Very much so. That's it. So what your assessment results come up with? What Can you read it to me? Uh, talent was uh, compassion, communication, discernment. Okay, hold on a second. Passion. Compassion, Certainly. communication, and discernment. That's what you do best. Okay, great. Now, what did you come up with on the passion side? Performing, advocating, and advising. Okay, advocating and advising and what was your missional result i'm going to take can i take a guess i'm going to i'm going to guess based on these results so far that your number one missional result was influence service it says service i like that okay great there's no wrong answer here so service so here's what i see uh your top talents these are your super skills super talents compassion you just have a heart for people you love Loving on people. Uh, communicating is next. You just know how to connect with people. Um, and then discernment. You read You read people really well. But then the passion is performing, advocating, and advising. And the performing side of this is very interesting. Okay, this what this, There's some ideas here. One is you need to be in a role where you serving people allows you to have a scoreboard. And what I mean by that is, is you're you're not just on the one-on-one. You want to serve as many people as possible. You want the pressure to serve. That's that performance side of things. The other clue that performing gives me is, and the fact that you're good at communication, there might be more of a public role where there's pressure on you to communicate, and in doing so, you serve. That's what I'm seeing there. The advocating uh, and the advising, again, also it really really aligns with the communicating, uh, the compassion, the discernment, and again, that pressure element. You like pressure to perform, yes or no? Sometimes. Sometimes. In person, not on the phone as much, but yes, sometimes. All right, give me an example of sometimes when you go, I like this type of performance. Describe it. Uh, I can be really nervous before maybe speaking in public, whether it's a small or large crowd, and just the adrenaline fuels me through. Instead of panicking, it it actually it's like you know just great sharpens me up. Great, I'm not surprised by that. I had a sense because of your skill set, uh, your top skills, including communication and then performing. That's always going to have some level of a public role. You get to decide. Okay. Um, and then, and then the service piece is, 
That's just what motivates you. The results that motivate you are, are communicating to serve, and that's the way you see it. So if you're using what you do best to do what you love to produce results that matter to you, you're on purpose. So what type of roles come up when you think, I was created to use my talents of compassion, communicating, and discernment to do the work that I love of performing, advocating, and advising for the result that fires me up and that service to people? What roles come to mind when I say it back to you that way? Sometimes people come to me for advice or when people are hurting or grieving. Uh, So roles, whether it's a pastor, things, maybe something of that nature. I agree. I'm going to add to that. Certainly pastoral. uh, Certainly a type of counseling that does not have to necessarily be a licensed therapist. Could be a coach. But I've got counseling in my head. I've got coach. I've got advisor. Um, I, these are just high level roles. Like we're just picturing these as hats that have those words on it. And it's, it's more about the function, the role, not the job description. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. And when you say advisor, do you mean something like a financial advisor or there's something entirely different? That's not up to me. I, I'm going to stick with that hat of advisor. Could it be a financial advisor? Sure. Could it be an advisor to students? Sure. Could it be an advisor to other leaders? Sure. I just think that you look at these different hats that we're talking about, pastor, counselor, coach, advisor, mentor, teacher. I'm not saying it's teaching in a traditional sense. Instructor. I I think now it's about who are the people I really want to help the problem or desire that those folks have. And I think that's next. See, all this, what we've done so far is, is we've given you awareness of what you're really, really good at, what you love to do and results that matter. Now we got to personalize it. Who are the people you most want to help? The problem or desire that they have and the solution to that. And then that's when we come back to these roles and we go, oh, I see it. So, for instance, if the people that you want to help are people that are struggling financially, and then you go, okay, those are the people I want to help. The problem they have is they have a lack of discipline. They have a lack of training. They have a lack of knowledge, whatever. And then what are the solutions to that? Well, I want to be a financial advisor. I want to be a financial coach or whatever, whatever, whatever. You see how we get to the actual role after we go, this is who I am and this is who I want to serve. So who do you want to serve the most? Just say it. People that are, that are hurting. Great. Great. What are they hurting from? Maybe just life in general. They were. Nah. No, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Come on. You get to pick the people you're helping all day, every day. What are the problems, the sources of hurt that most anger you or most health issues, spiritual issues, health and spiritual issues? Now we're getting somewhere. Why are those issues important to you? Why do those issues anger you? And by the way, this is righteous anger we're talking about. Why do those issues anger you more than others? It bothers me to see people that are beat down, that are defenseless. Where does that come from in your own life? I've, I've experienced it before, but also just seeing them overlooked. Yeah. And where does that come from in your life? That's a 
good question. That's hard for me. I'm trying to figure that That's out. That's okay. I've put you on the spot, but you don't have to answer that in this moment. I'm going to suggest to you that the people and the problems that your heart are drawn to has a direct connection to you. It either happened to you or happened to somebody that you care deeply about. You have either experienced it or observed it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And when I have experienced something or I have observed something that angers my heart or breaks my heart, then that compels me into purposeful action. Make sense? Yes, sir. So I think what you're looking at, my friend, are in the Chattanooga, Tennessee area. Let's just have some fun. Let's just search. People that are struggling with physical issues. Who's helping them? Well, we got a gym over here. We got a nutritionist over here. We've got a physical therapist over here. Let's just start finding out who are the people that are working to help those people that you want to help. There's where the ideation comes from, my friend. Appreciate the call, Spencer. This is the Ken Coleman Show. Press on. Thanks for listening to the Ken Coleman Show. For more, you can find the show on demand wherever you listen to podcasts and watch the show on YouTube. You can also find Ken across all social media by following at Ken Coleman.